Hi everyone, I'm your host NG, and welcome to the 35th episode of the podcast. Sounds about right? Audiobooks help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Joyce Tildesley, author of the book Tutankhamun, Pharaoh, Icon, Enigma, lost for 3,000 years, misunderstood for a century. A hundred years ago, a team of archaeologists in the Valley of the Kings made a remarkable discovery in their complete royal burial, an ancient mummy, and golden riches beyond imagination. The lost tomb of Tutankhamun ignited a media frenzy propelled into overdrive by rumours of a deadly ancient curse. But amid the hysteria, many stories, including that of Tutankhamun himself, were distorted or forgotten. In the book, Professor Tildesley tells the story of Tutankhamun as he would have wanted to be remembered, piecing together 3,000 years of evidence and unpicking the misunderstandings that surround Egypt's most famous king. This book offers a vital reappraisal on his life, death, an enduring legacy. It was great discussing the book with Joyce. Hope you enjoyed the episode. In the book, you write of how you remember Tutankhamun as he wished to be. So Joyce, what is the conflict between how he is often widely remembered and what was how he wanted to be remembered? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think we tend to remember him as a dead pharaoh and possibly as a dead boy pharaoh. Someone who's sort of a bit weak and who's been manipulated and is bandaged up, you know, not very effective. Whereas I think what he wanted to be remembered as and what we have images of him being is an effective pharaoh, a king of Egypt, a person who is able to achieve things. He died young by our standards. He died at about 18 years old, but that's not particularly young in ancient Egypt. And I think he would have seen himself very much as a man and a person in charge of his own destiny who just had the big misfortune to die young. So I I think it's quite important also that we remember him as a person, not just as a dead body. Absolutely. And... These two stories of how he's remembered are thousands of years apart, aren't they? Yes. He came to the throne in about 1336 BCE, so that's a long time ago. And he reigned and he died and he was kind of forgotten. He wasn't entirely forgotten because there were some images of him left in Egypt and his name wasn't forgotten. But nobody really thought much about him until his tomb was rediscovered in 1922. And then suddenly he sort of burst onto the world and he almost immediately became an ancient world celebrity. And people became very, very familiar with him. And I would say today that he's really the most, I don't want to say popular, but the most famous. He is still a celebrity, isn't he? People have heard of Tutankhamun. Even people who know nothing about ancient Egypt have heard of Tutankhamun. And he's been that way ever since. And... Your approach to his story, as you mentioned in the book, is loosely based on the principle of Occam's razor. And if I was to paraphrase what that is, it means that telling his story, you're getting the unnecessary information out of the way and are sticking with the best way to explain the facts and the information. Is that correct? or is Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's the simplest way. So hmm. wherever there's an option, I will tend to choose the simplest one because I kind of think that's probably the most likely one. This is the interesting thing about studying ancient Egypt, though, that we don't have all the answers. And any book or any author who tells you that we know everything, it's just not true. There's a lot we're still working out. There's a lot that we know, but there's a lot that we're still working out. And so there are things about Tutankhamun, for example, his parents that we don't know 
And we have to take educated guesses about this. And I will, in those circumstances, go for the most likely, which is that probably he is the son of the previous king and the previous king's consort. But there's other possibilities that other people will also throw into the mix. I mean, to me, this is what makes ancient Egypt fascinating, that we are able to consider all these different options. But I know it frustrates some people very much because they like their history to be sort of quite well defined and, and it's just not. And when you speak of his family, you mention how he left two pieces of evidence that encourages us to doubt the mainstream assumption of who his father is, right? Yes, he did. I mean, he never specifically tells us who his father is, but he does leave an inscription which suggests that his father was a king called Amenhotep III. But in fact, we're pretty sure that this wasn't his father at all. It was his grandfather. This is where we get into all sorts of difficulties. First of all, because we could read the ancient texts, but we don't necessarily understand what they mean. For example, the word brother can mean, yes, it can mean someone who you're related to by blood who has the same parents as you, but it could also mean half-brother, step-brother. It could mean friend. And I think we can understand this a bit more today because we're a bit more fluid with language ourselves. So what we suspect is when he says that Amenhotep III is his father, Amenhotep III is a great and mighty pharaoh that everyone respects. So he's kind of bonding himself to him. But he would have been quite old to have been his father. It's more likely that a pharaoh called Akhenaten was his father, but Akhenaten wasn't respected. So it seems that Tutankhamun wanted to ally himself with the more respected members of his family and to sort of forget about the less respected members of his family. But of course, this just really confuses us even more because we have to try and work out which bits of, of what they tell us is right and which is not. We have a tendency to think that everything that was written down in the past is true and it's not necessarily so. And so, Joyce, I wanted to also ask you, why is Tutankhamun's a minor background so integral to us understanding who he was? It's because it's so different than everything that had gone before. Akhenaten, who is the king who founds the Amarna Age, is very different. Obviously, he's an Egyptian king and he comes with all the baggage that kings have. So he comes to the throne knowing that he's in charge of all the religious cults in the land. He can't run all the cults because there are too many. There are thousands and thousands of gods. But he has priests who work for him and, and he really runs all these cults. And the Egyptians very strongly believe that they have to keep the gods happy because if the gods aren't happy, then Egypt won't flourish. So it's the king's duty to keep Egypt happy. But this king, Akhenaten, breaks away from all of that and he worships primarily one god, which is the sun, the sort of disk of the sun, and this god doesn't even look like typical Egyptian gods. It's a big circle in the sky and it's got long, thin rays that come off the sun disk and has little tiny hands on the end. <laughs> and it holds out the anchor of life to the royal family. So Akhenaten dedicates himself and his family and his court to this new god and he moves the court away to a new city. So suddenly the court is isolated, whereas before they've been like at the heart of Egyptian and life. It, it's not, there's this new city develops in the middle of Egypt where no one's lived before and everything is focused on the Aten. And this is where we think Tutankhamun was born and brought up. So when he comes to the throne and he's only eight years old, he knows no other way of living. And yet during his reign, he does a lot to reverse this strange religious experiment because it hasn't really worked. We can only assume that he's being guided by others who can remember the old ways because he actually wouldn't have known them. But he dedicates himself to it. And by the time he dies, he's still doing this. He's still restoring the traditional gods of Egypt, bringing things back to how they were, boosting the army, thinking about going on campaigns and stuff. So although 
He wasn't brought up understanding traditional Egypt. It's a way of life that he embraces and that he dedicates himself to when he's old enough to make up his own mind. It's not just the gods are angry with Egypt, which is possibly how the Egyptians would see it, but because it's just not working. But the whole infrastructure of having all the, the traditional temples and the traditional cults, they weren't just places to worship. They were also economic institutions which generated wealth, which stored wealth. Without those all working, Egypt was kind of collapsing and Akhenaten had been very inwardly focused at Amarna. He'd sort of hidden himself away. He didn't leave the city. He'd lost touch of what was happening. And Egypt's a really long, thin land, if you can picture it. It's a long way from the north to the south. So the people at the extreme ends of the country were kind of forgetting about the pharaoh, who they never saw. It all needed to be put back to how it had been, and this is what Tutankhamun did. So he sees himself as, as a great restorer of traditional values. Joyce, you mentioned in the book how there seems to be a widely shared or misunderstood idea regarding how he died. What are these theories, or for lack of a better term, ideas? The first theory that came out, or idea, was almost as soon as the tomb was discovered and it was realised that he was quite a young person because until they found the tomb, until they found the body, they weren't certain how old he was and there were some people thought that he was actually quite an old man who had taken either the throne by force or had married into the royal family. And obviously when they realised that he died when he was 18, and there was evidence to suggest he'd been on the throne for 10 years, it, it became clear that he'd taken over when he was eight. And obviously that suggests that he's born into the royal family because an eight-year-old can't normally just take a throne. So the idea was that maybe he'd been murdered by a rival, somebody who wanted to take the throne. And this was quite popular for a time, but there isn't a great deal of evidence to support it. It's a theory that still pops up from time to time, but there's no real evidence for it. And there were other theories that maybe he'd had tuberculosis, but again, no real evidence for this. If we look at his body, it's really badly damaged. And it's clear that it was damaged at or around the time of his death. So he was mummified with a damaged body rather than his mummy itself being damaged a long time after death. And he's got a lot of damage to his chest, his heart's missing and his leg is damaged as well. So what we now think today is that the fact that his heart's missing and he would have wanted his heart for the afterlife, it would have helped him. So the fact that it's not there suggests that maybe it decayed before he could be mummified because Egypt's a hot country and bodies don't keep forever. So if he died maybe away from the royal undertakers, and by the time they got his body there, it was too late to save that part of his anatomy, maybe he died in an accident or even on the battlefield. Personally, I think because of the damage to his chest, it looks like maybe he had a high impact accident, that maybe he was doing something like hunting in the desert. Because a lot of young men, they love speed, don't they? And he was a young man. He was the king, but he was only 18. You can just imagine racing across the desert in your chariot with your mates, hunting ostriches. A fatal crash, unexpected. And that could have been it. But we have no proof. So that's why we have so many theories around as well. But that is my personal... It's not just my idea. Other people have this idea as well, but that's the one I believe. Mm, absolutely and it's difficult to gauge isn't it because we're talking about a body that's seen around 3,000 years after it's been buried and of course there can be contamination there could be I think you mentioned in the book actually that there have been people that tried to rob the tomb as well so it's difficult to come to a correct conclusion in terms of what exactly happened isn't it it is and one 
quite strange things that seems to have happened to him is that when he was put into his coffins and he's got three coffins that sort of go inside each other like those Russian dolls that you can buy and then they're in a stone sarcophagus when they put him into all of this they poured a lot of like ointments and resins over his body in a religious ritual and they've sort of charred his body it's almost like he was about to catch fire so on top of all the damage that was underneath the bandaging the bandages themselves are also both were glued to his body and sort of charred and burnt as well which makes it even harder and it explains why when they found the body they performed an autopsy on it which we absolutely wouldn't do today we wouldn't think of unwrapping well any mummy but certainly not a royal mummy but they did and they basically cut him out of the coffin and they basically cut him into pieces when they examined him which means it's even harder today to work out what went on with him and you also mentioned how he had 5,000 grave goods and a lot of statues as well. So how does that help us understand who he was? Our problem is we don't really understand why the grave goods were put in the grave. It looks a bit like a massive museum collection, but trying to understand why we're there, we can kind of divide them up into things that are practical. So there's like food and drink in there which he might have wanted to use after death so we can learn from that what he ate and what he drank there's an awful lot of wine jars in there for example (laughs) and they're dated actually so they're quite helpful to us there's clothing in there and it's interesting because there's children's clothing in there as well now if he was going to wear this clothing in his afterlife it's very unlikely to have worn the clothing that he wore when he was eight yet that's all in there too So it tells us both what he did in daily life and what he wore and also maybe tells us that a king's clothes could never be thrown away but they would be saved and buried with him no matter how long he reigned for. And maybe if he died at 90, we'd have had like 80 years worth of clothes in the tomb with him. So that's really interesting. But then we get on to the less practical aspects of it and the sort of more ritual things that are in the tomb. And a lot of the pieces in the tomb are designed to help him to achieve the afterlife that he wants to achieve because he doesn't intend to stay forever in that tomb he intends his body to be there forever but his spirit will journey on and what he will do is after the funeral when everybody goes away and the door is closed that night he will set off on a journey which will end up with him either becoming one with the king of the dead osiris or one with the sun god who rides his boat across the sky every day or even might become a star or very excitingly he could combine these options as well it's not entirely clear what he wanted so we can use these ritual objects to try and work out what he believed would happen to him in the afterlife the only thing we haven't got though is written material that's unique there's a few spells and prayers and things written but they're kind of standard there's nothing unique to him there's no diary or letters or anything that would have given us a personal glimpse of him or even told us who his parents are which is a bit frustrating but the rest of the artifacts are really useful they're still being analyzed we've not got anywhere near understanding what was in that tomb I wanted to touch on the later part of the book, namely the chapter where you wrote about the discovery of Tutankhamun. And this was done by Howard Carter and George V, Earl of Carnarvon. Yes. And is it fair for me to say that although that was an extraordinary find, it came with a lot of controversy? It did. It did. The timing of it straight after the First World War, where a lot of young people had died. The world was a different sort of place than it had been. There'd been a massive influenza epidemic as well. So the world was very unsettled. And of course, Egypt was particularly unsettled because it was on the brink of obtaining independence. 
So the idea of foreigners just rocking up in your land and excavating and finding one of your dead kings and then emptying out the tomb it really didn't sit well and even in the west people hadn't really thought about these things in the past we're starting to question is this really how we should be behaving and with the growing egyptian nationalism tutankhamun himself sort of started to become a symbol for the egyptians who wanted independence they saw this the resurrection of the king as the resurrection of their own hopes for independence as well So it's something we still discuss today, and rightly so. You know, should we be doing this? Is it right to ever open a tomb? Is it right to go to someone else's land and open their tombs? If we do this, should we be putting bodies on display? What should we do? I think it's right that as archaeologists, we should definitely be questioning this behaviour. I think that's a good question. And there's a great point you raised in the book about whether, let's say in the UK, in the year 5000, foreigners come and dug up the grave of Queen Victoria. And how would people feel about that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Where would you stand with the argument yourself, Joyce? I've changed a lot over the years. First of all, I sort of saw Egyptology or archaeology in general as a very pure science. And I was thinking, well, does it matter if we dig up bodies because they're dead? But increasingly, I think it does matter because you have to respect traditions. And if people didn't want to be dug up, do we really learn a lot? If we did dig up Queen Victoria, would he actually learn much from doing that? Probably not, actually. Nothing that we don't know. So should we not perhaps be at least thinking about respecting the traditions of these people and then going to other people's land and doing it again is another question of course, again, we shouldn't be doing that. If anyone's digging up kings, it should be the people whose kings they were, not foreigners. So I think these are all really important questions. Archaeology has moved on a lot from the beginnings where it was just seen as completely normal to find a graveyard and dig it up. Now you would really have to have a very good reason to think about doing that because the evidence you learn from it, how much are you going to learn from it? Of course, you don't know. This is the thing, isn't it, with archaeology? You don't know. But we should be questioning this behaviour all the time to see whether we're doing the right thing. And it just, in a way, it seems a bit sad that he made all these plans and preparations and was preserved for so long. And now he's not with his grave goods. He's in the Valley of the Kings and his grave goods are in the museum in Cairo. Although I have heard that they're thinking of moving him. But then he wanted to stay in the Valley of the Kings. Exactly. Yeah, it's true. Speaking of archaeology, once again, you make a very good point in a later chapter of the book that archaeology, by its very nature, destroys a thing that it seeks. And making an accurate record and keeping prompt publication matters is of vital importance. So I wanted to ask you, how can we be sure of the accounts of the discovery of the tomb by Carter and Carnarvon? Yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, I think Carter, obviously I've never met him. He died long before I was born. But from reports of people who know him, he was a meticulous worker and certainly of his generation. I mean, of the other people who were around at the time, it's better, I think, that he found the tomb than some of the others who were working and who were very rapid workers who didn't record things properly. So he was quite systematic and he was quite persistent and he didn't rush. He couldn't be rushed. In fact, Lord Carnarvon was really worried that it was going to take years and years to empty the tomb, which he did because Carter was so slow. And he also recognised that he needed help. So he brought in teams of experts. So that's good. 
But even so, he was a man of his time. He made assumptions about what was important and what was not. We know that not everything that was found in the tome was recorded. There are little bits of, of material that weren't recorded, which I think he would have seen as acceptable, and we don't today because it messes with the archaeology. And also, if you take goods out of the tomb, that's theft because they're not your goods. So I think for a man of his time, we could trust him. But we also have to be aware that even seeing things through different eyes. For example, you might not, if you're an Edwardian man, think that the textiles are important because you've been brought up that way. Whereas today we would think textiles are very important. You know, it's things like that as well. It's not just the obvious taking things from the tomb or not recording things. It's also like viewpoints as well that, that might just be slightly skewed. We always have to be aware of that. And how did Lord Carnarvon expect to profit because of the Ottomans' antiques law of 1884 once he discovered the tomb? Yeah, he thought that he would get at least half the contents and there was a chance he might get the whole contents. And this was the law at the time. In fact, he was worried that it would take a long time to get it because of Carter being such a slow and methodical worker. So he actually sold the rights to the tomb, to the Times newspaper, and there was a ludicrous situation where only the correspondent from the Times was allowed in the tomb and anybody who wanted to read about it, including the Egyptian people, had to read about it through the Times of London. And he got some money for that. But he did think it would all be his. But of course, once it became clear what had been found, it also became very clear that that collection absolutely should not be broken up. And the law was changed. And today you can't take anything out of Egypt at all. If you're excavating, you absolutely have to leave everything there. So that was a big change in the law. But he certainly thought that it was his. And I think this is why possibly reports of like the odd grave good making its way to the West, if they thought they were theirs, maybe they thought that they could take them earlier. Not, not right, and I'm not excusing it, but we could kind of a bit understand it. Whereas today, no one would dream of taking an antiquity out of Egypt. And you also speak of how Lord Carnarvon died as well. And there was a theory at the time that this might have been because of the curse. Would you mind touching on what this curse was, Joyce? Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned that the Times had exclusive right to the tomb. So the world was fascinated. The Egyptian journalists were fascinated. Western journalists were fascinated. Luxor, where the Valley of the Kings is, was packed full of journalists and tourists. And everybody wanted to know what was happening in the tomb. But nobody was allowed to know. So the press turned against the dig. It's quite a modern situation, this in a way, because they were getting no information. They became hostile. And then suddenly Lord Carnarvon died. He died in the April after the tomb had been discovered in the November. He had a mosquito bite that became infected and he died of blood poisoning, basically, in Cairo. And instantly this was a story that could be told in the newspapers. This wasn't covered by the Times deal. So the newspapers rushed to report the death of Carnarvon but they didn't talk to archaeologists about it because archaeologists weren't talking to them because there was a very bad feeling. They talked to people like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, and Marie Corelli, who was a very famous Gothic novelist. And these people had strange theories that maybe Tutankhamun himself had killed the archaeologist who'd investigated his tomb. And these theories were given quite a lot of prominence in the newspapers and sort of passed on by word of mouth. And because these were strange times and because it was after the World War and because a lot of people were interested in alternative forms of religion and were interested in trying to communicate with the dead because they'd lost loved ones either in the war or the influenza epidemic, this really took hold. And people came to believe that Lord Carnarvon had been killed by Tutankhamun. 
Whereas in fact, there isn't a curse in the tomb. But the trouble is, if you say that, it sounds like you're either part of the conspiracy theory or you're conned by the conspiracy theory. I mean, it's been suggested that there was a curse, but Howard Carter hid it so that he didn't frighten the workmen. So I don't think I'm being conned by a conspiracy theory. I honestly don't believe there was anything in the tomb. I just think it's this chain of events that was set in motion by the selling of the rights to the tomb and it led to his own death being sort of joined to this curse theory. But since then, anybody who died, even loosely connected with Tutankhamun, people say, oh, it's the curse of Tutankhamun. Well, I don't believe in it, but I don't believe in curses, so that's probably why. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. And to be fair, at the later part of that chapter, it is kind of rebutted when you break down how many people were there and how many people died years preceding. Yeah. Yeah. Clutching at straws, isn't it? It is. But the interesting thing is, you know, people have done that research, they've looked at who was there and they died. And about every 10 or 15 years, someone else will do exactly the same research. And obviously it always proves the same thing. But it's a theory that just really hasn't died away. But even though I'm giving a lecture and it's, you know, a light bulb blows or something like that, someone will say, oh, it's the Pharaoh's curse. It's become so accepted that this happens. No, it's true. Absolutely. So the last thing I want to ask you, Joyce, probably a, a difficult question to answer, actually, but because there's a lot of things in the book, which I think the reader can take away. But if there's anything you'd like the reader to learn from the book, what would that be? I think I'd like the reader to learn that ancient Egypt is a fantastic place to study. It will teach you effortlessly, painlessly about history and geography and about analysis. And you'll get to look at beautiful objects. It's not necessarily something you have to do formally. You can go online and you can look at museum collections. You can listen to podcasts and so on. But it's such a rewarding area for study. And because nothing's set in stone, we have the framework, but there are still lots of places where people can have their own opinions. There's a lot of scope for imagination and just sheer enjoyment. So I would really encourage, of course I would do this because I teach Egyptology, but I've had so much pleasure from learning about Tutankhamun and all the Egyptian pharaohs and, and life in ancient Egypt. that I'd really encourage people to read about it, watch it on videos and so on, and just try and enjoy the ancient world. That was Joyce Tildesley, author of the book Tutankhamun, Pharaoh, Icon, Enigma, lost for 3,000 years, misunderstood for a century. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Joyce for coming on the podcast, and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.